Welcome back to Roshcast for episode six. Just like last week, let's get going with a quick warm-up rapid review and then jump right into the questions for this week. You ready? What three groups of high-risk contacts for a patient with Neisseria meningitidis require chemoprophylaxis and what regimen should be offered for maximal efficacy? Prophylaxis should be offered to household members, school contacts in the prior seven days, and those with direct exposure to the patient. The preferred regimen is rifampin BID for two days. Great. What is the most common cause for a bilateral Bell's palsy? That would be Lyme disease. What's the most common cause of maternal mortality during delivery? You're referring to maternal hemorrhage caused by uterine atony, genital trauma, retained products, or more rarely, DIC. What is the most common serious adverse reaction to ketamine when used for procedural sedation in children, and what is the most common adverse effect? The most serious adverse reaction to ketamine is laryngospasm, which is treated with bag valve mask ventilation, while the most common adverse reaction is the emergence reaction. All right, great warm-up. If you were lost on any of those questions, check out last week's episode of Roshcast, where we go through related questions in much more detail. Let's get going with the new material for this week. Looks like the first question is on toxicology. Which of the following antidotes is paired with the correct poisoning? Is it A, bupivacaine and intralipid, B, hydrofluoric acid and magnesium sulfate, C, lorazepam and fomepazole, or D, metformin and octreotide? It's a tough question with a lot to review here. I believe the correctly paired combination here is bupivacaine and intralipid. Yes, indeed. Intralipid is a really valuable tool in the tox overdose toolbox. It is a potential antidote to highly protein-bound drugs such as local anesthetics, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and TCAs. Although the exact mechanism of action hasn't fully been elucidated, understanding the proposed theories may help you recall. In the lipid sink theory, the fat-soluble drugs are soaked up by the intralipid, decreasing the volume of distribution. In the second theory, the intralipid supports better cardiac intracellular metabolism as during stressful situations, the heart cannot rely on glucose metabolism alone. Since intralipid isn't something we frequently order, what doses of intralipid are required? The initial dose should be a bolus of 1.5 milliliters per kilogram. This should be followed by infusion of 0.25 milliliters per kilogram per minute. This rate can be increased up to 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per minute in cases of refractory hypotension. And what about the other choices in this question? What are the antidotes for hydrofluoric acid, lorazepam, and metformin? While hydrofluoric acid exposure can be treated with topical calcium gluconate when it is mixed into a gel, it can also be locally injected. Intraarterial calcium gluconate can be used for severe exposures. Lorazepam and all benzodiazepine overdoses can be treated with flumazenil. Watch out for seizures in chronic users. A metformin overdose has no specific treatment, but dialysis can be considered. And lastly, for sulfonylurea antihyperglycemics, an octreotide infusion may also be appropriate. Great thorough review. Let's keep going with the tox theme for one more question. A three-year-old girl presents with altered mental status. According to her parents, she was acting normally until yesterday when she started complaining of abdominal pain, vomiting, and bloody diarrhea. She was found holding a bottle of her mom's vitamins. Although she improved initially, a few hours later, she became lethargic. On arrival, she was responsive to painful stimuli only. She was tacky to 160 and hypotensive to 65 over 40. Her ABG showed a metabolic acidosis. What is the definitive therapy for this patient? Is it A, activated charcoal, B, defaroxamine, C, sodium bicarbonate, or D, whole bowel irrigation? That's a long question, so let me get this straight. We have a three-year-old girl who overdosed on vitamins, had abdominal pain, vomiting, and bloody diarrhea, then suddenly improved, is now lethargic, tacky, hypotensive, and acidotic. 
So this has to be an iron overdose, which is treated with choice B, deferoxamine. Yeah, this is definitely an iron overdose with the classic symptoms of GI distress, shock, and acidosis. Iron toxicity typically manifests with ingestions greater than 40 milligrams per kilogram. Isn't choice D, whole bowel irrigation, also correct? That's a great question. GI decontamination is possible for those with less significant overdoses. For those with severe toxicity, chelation therapy is a must. Chelation therapy should be performed in those with shock, acidosis, altered mental status, severe GI symptoms, or iron levels greater than 500 micrograms per deciliter. The patient in this question has at least four of the five, so deferoxamine is a must. Yeah, definitely. Don't forget the five stages of iron toxicity. Stage one, from 30 minutes to six hours, is marked by GI irritation. Stage two, from six to 24 hours after ingestion, is marked by recovery. Stage three, which is shock and metabolic acidosis, occurs six to 72 hours after ingestion. Stage four, fulminant hepatic failure, lasts from 12 to 96 hours. And the final stage, bowel obstruction, can occur from two weeks up to eight weeks after exposure and is due to GI mucosal scarring. And what about activated charcoal? Is charcoal of any use in such poisonings? Well, activated charcoal doesn't bind iron, so it's of no use here. Another great tox review. It's enough tox for today, and let's move on to something else, like oncology. You are the physician caring for a patient who was recently diagnosed with pancreatic adenocarcinoma. The oncologist makes a note of a positive Trousseau syndrome in the documentation. Which of the following is she referring to? Is it A, a non-tender palpable gallbladder? B, a palpable left supraclavicular lymph node? C, popliteal pain with abrupt angled dorsiflexion? Or D, a tender migratory thrombophlebitis? Trousseau syndrome is tender migratory thrombophlebitis, which is associated with pancreatic cancer. So the correct answer here is D. That's correct, but let's go through the other answer choices before moving on. Choice A, a non-tender palpable gallbladder, is known as Crevasse's sign. Choice B, a palpable left supraclavicular lymph node, or Virchow sign, is common to both gastric and pancreatic cancer. Choice C, popliteal pain with abrupt ankle dorsiflexion, is known as Homan sign and is seen with DVTs. Although an uncommon ED diagnosis, the classic presentation of pancreatic cancer is new-onset jaundice with or without pain. Unexplained new-onset diabetes, pancreatitis, and malabsorption are also common presenting symptoms. Yeah, and risk factors include familial gene mutations, tobacco use, obesity, and chronic pancreatitis. Right, let's move from uncommon ED diagnoses to something we see much more frequently, rashes. A 27-year-old presents with a painful rash on both of her legs and arms. The rash consists of painful red-violet nodules deep under her skin. What is the most common cause of this condition? Is it A, allergy, B, drug hypersensitivity reaction, C, herpes virus, or D, streptococcal infection? I know painful red nodules deep under the skin refers to erythema nodosum, which is commonly seen in streptococcal infections, so the answer here must be choice D. Allergy does not cause erythema nodosum, and drugs can certainly cause them, but they are not the most common culprit. Herpes virus causes erythema multiforme, not erythema nodosum. Yeah, erythema nodosum is thought to be a delayed hypersensitivity reaction. It is most commonly found over the anterior tibia, but can occur anywhere. Before the onset of the rash, the patient often has a fever and vague arthralgias, especially in the ankles. It is commonly associated with certain drugs, with oral contraceptives being the most commonly implicated agent. And what's the treatment for this condition? NSAIDs are typically the first-line therapy, Severe pain has also been shown to respond to potassium iodide. Great. Before moving on, let's quickly review. Painful reddish-violet nodules typically found over the anterior tibia are referred to as erythema nodosum and are commonly seen in streptococcal infections. 
They can also be caused by drugs such as OCPs and can be treated with NSAIDs and potassium iodide in severe cases. Exactly right. Let's load up the next question. All right, you're up. A 15-year-old G1P0 at 23 weeks presents with sharp left lower quadrant abdominal pain for one hour. She has already had an abdominal ultrasound confirming the presence of a single intrauterine pregnancy. The pain is severe and associated with nausea. Pelvic examination reveals tenderness at the left adenexa. The patient's UA is unremarkable. What test should be performed in order to diagnose this patient? Is it A, abdominal x-ray, B, CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, C, pelvic ultrasound, or D, white blood cell count? I believe this question is pointing towards ovarian torsion, so the answer here is pelvic ultrasound. This is a classic presentation for ovarian torsion, a sharp unilateral abdominal pain with nausea and vomiting. She's also the right age, childbearing age. This, however, isn't 100% classic because the patient seems to have torus the less common side. What do you mean? Can you explain that just a little bit more? Well, because the sigmoid colon is on the left, it stabilizes the left ovary, making the right ovary the more common side to experience torsion. Interesting. But what if you get the pelvic ultrasound and it's completely negative, normal left ovary? Does this rule out torsion? No. Ultimately, patients with suspected torsion may require laparoscopy to confirm or rule out torsion. On ultrasound, the classic appearance is ovarian enlargement with a heterogeneous stroma and peripherally displaced follicles. If you include Doppler studies, you may see decreased blood flow to the ovary. Cysts, especially large ones, are risk factors as well. Remember that all of these may be normal and the patient may still need laparoscopy to rule out torsion. That's an important management pearl. Patients with a negative pelvic ultrasound but ongoing pain may still have torsion and may require admission for serial exams and possible laparoscopy. All right, looks like we have time for just one more question here, so why don't you load up the next one? Sure. Which of the following statements is true regarding the diagnosis of Epstein-Barr virus infection? Is it A, Guillain-Barre syndrome is a possible complication, B, neutrophilia predominates, C, splenomegaly occurs in 10% of patients, or D, the virus is transmitted via respiratory droplets? The answer here would be choice A, Guillain-Barre syndrome is a possible complication of EBV. Exactly. And why are the other answers incorrect here? Well, EBV is associated with lymphocytosis, greater than 50% lymphocytes, especially atypical lymphocytes, not neutrophilia. Splenomegaly is seen in greater than 50% of patients, not just 10%. Young athletes should be advised to avoid contact sports for at least four weeks. Lastly, EBV is transmitted in salivary secretions and requires close contact, and it is not transmitted by respiratory droplets. This is why it's also known as the kissing disease. And what other illnesses is EBV implicated in? Sadly, there's quite a few. EVB is associated with mononucleosis, B-cell lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, Burkitt lymphoma, and nasopharyngeal carcinoma. It can affect nearly all organ systems and cause a terrible neurologic complications, such as encephalitis, meningitis, and Guillain-Barre syndrome, as the question hinted at. And lastly, which antibiotics are associated with the development of a morbilliform rash in a patient with infectious mononucleosis? That would be ampicillin and amoxicillin. Nice work. Let's move on to the rapid review. Bupivacaine toxicity is treated with intralipid. Hydrofluoric acid exposure is treated with calcium gluconate, either topically in a gel or intraarterially. Benzodiazepine overdoses should be treated with flumazenil, but use flumazenil with caution in those who use benzodiazepines chronically as it may precipitate seizures. Iron overdose occurs with ingestions of greater than 40 milligrams per kilogram. They should be treated with deferoxamine. For less significant overdoses, GI decontamination may be attempted. Charcoal is of no utility as it doesn't bind iron. There are five stages of iron toxicity. GI irritation, recovery, shock with metabolic acidosis, 
fulminant hepatic failure, and bowel obstruction, secondary to scarring. Trousseau syndrome, a migratory thrombophobitis, is associated with pancreatic cancer. Erythema nodosum presents as tender red-violet nodules deep under the skin. The most common cause for them is infection, especially streptococcal. Drugs can also cause such lesions, with OCPs being the most common culprit. Erythema nodosum is treated with NSAIDs and potassium iodide in severe cases. Ovarian torsion is difficult to diagnose. It is commonly seen in women of childbearing age. Torsion more commonly occurs on the right, especially in ovaries with large cysts. Laparoscopy is the only way to definitively rule out the condition. EBV can lead to many neurologic complications, such as encephalitis, meningitis, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. EBV is associated with a profound lymphocytic predominance, with atypical lymphocytes seen on peripheral smear. Splenomegaly is a common sequela of an EBV infection, so remember to tell all athletes to abstain from contact sports for at least four weeks. And watch out for morbilliform rashes in those with the EBV who are given ampicillin or amoxicillin. And that concludes Roshcast episode six. Don't forget to check out roshreview.com for hundreds of other high-yield questions, as well as these questions and more detailed explanations. 